This is NER Out Loud, a podcast that animates stories and poems from the New England Review, celebrating the artistic exchange between text and voice. I'm Juliette Lewini. For this episode, we're trying something a little different. In the past, we've featured actors reading pieces from the Quarterly magazine and lively vocal performances. But now we're going straight to the source, asking local New England Review writers to read to us from their own work. This will be the first in an ongoing project, something we're calling the Vermont Writer Series, in which NER reaches out to writers in our home state and presents their voices in intimate readings and conversations. I lay that summer down as a burnt offering. Its smell is of hair, ocean, and wild rosemary. I could let the whole island burn, as if the dried gravel roads and beaches of nude bodies had their own summer apart from us. That haunting voice is poet Dee Dee Jackson, the subject of this first episode in the Vermont Writer Series. I met Dee Dee at her office at the University of Vermont, where she teaches creative writing. And the tea is going to make noise in a minute. Should, I, should we wait till that's... Yeah, that's a good... Yeah. And where we talked over a cup of tea. Dee Dee Jackson's poems are evocative, sharp, and grapple with grief. As a forewarning, her poems explore the aftermath of suicide, so please take care of yourselves. First, Dee Dee read two poems that we published in the New England Review, Burning Bush from The Print Journal and Brancusi's Bird from NER Digital. Okay, so uh, this poem is The Burning Bush, and it's dedicated to Brianne Ort who was a student of mine for several years while in high school. Um, And we remained close through social media, and I was able to watch her grow up. Um, And she was murdered by her partner um, in a murder-suicide, leaving behind her young son. And um, I just... The whole community was devastated. I was devastated, of course, and I felt so compelled to write about her experience and the issue that we are facing with gun violence. The Burning Bush for Brianne Ort. An entire alphabet can be stuttered in a few gunshots. So often it's the boyfriend spiraling down the chamber, his words lodged in the barrel behind the bullet, fast and frenzied. We all wonder why the trash at the dump never stops burning, why the blind look to the wind. The rain stumbles outside the window, the tombe before the heavy pas de beret of storm. Cathedral de San Marco in Venice speaks two languages, Greek and Latin, and I am jealous of those with two tongues, like the white pine whose trunk cracks and whose needles whistle to the bilingual nuthatch. The sun torches the tips of the trees on a descent from a world where no woman is safe. Anne, who loved her, wanted her dead. 
The burning bush is an invasive species, yet cardinals and chickadees flock to its red seeds and flamed leaves in the fall. I should cut it to a stump and rot its roots, but instead I admire its show of color, watching the damage as it spreads. Brancusi's Bird in Space I move around the gold line of a bird until I see a single feather, the sky and song inside reflection, an endless body balanced on beak, the foot a hackle of bronze. I orbit in and out of my wren mind where my eye lingers not on the tip but rather the center swell the light lean as if burdened to carry the weight of another in the core belly of plume. Death is rarely scheduled. It may have been winter or maybe spring. Did he drive my car or his? At 17 and already slightly swollen, I entered a clinic to clean up my life. Was I sure? Yes. Even now, Sometimes I'm sure the winter whir of my ancient basement boiler is my molten past. I wanted to consume all that made me ache. No, I wanted to expel all that damned me. I circle the bronze, trying to find another way in to its wing, to its powder down, remembering the scrape and pluck. I don't remember much about Bancusi or the court case affirming his cast metal as art. Each night, the moon turns its same side to the earth, forces tides to act as brakes on our planet's rotation. But I am spinning on brakes worn out years ago. Then, Dee Dee shared a special sneak peek of unpublished poems from her upcoming collection, Moon Jar, which is forthcoming from Red Hen Press in spring 2020. Moon Jar My wedding ring is missing one small diamond, and I like it that way a reminder of the imperfect in all of us, like that keyhole size of grief that remains crystalline. In Korea, ceramicists for centuries have made moon jars, testimony to the virtue of modesty, asymmetrical warping on the wheel, slumping in the pine-heated kiln, impurities when fired, black dots and pox on its surface like freckles on skin. I've been kept awake so many nights by the moon. It's pull on the pines and night birds and who, like a monk, keeps a sharp order of time. Never a perfect sphere, the milky moon jar joins two clay hemispheres into one. When the light of the moon finds me, I am the color of everything in the winter night.
Killing Jar. There are days I go to the mailbox and find letters from my dead husband, translating for me his suicide. The cold blade softened into cursive. His fear licked onto the stamp as the return address, the date of his death. I look forward to these letters. Some are addressed to my son. I collect and keep those. At times, this is a greedy act, but he is too young. I see my body asleep in my son's body, my eyes behind his eyes. But now I worry there is distortion, like Parmigianino's self-portrait in a convex mirror. His hand partly reaches out to me, partly curls back into itself. When I was a girl, my uncle mailed to me framed collections of mounted butterflies, blue morpho, tiger wing, Malachite, Moon Seder. These are all names my husband could take now. I imagine him as Goldman's Eusilacia or the Great Eurebia. I know that to kill a butterfly, you use a killing jar. Because they are so fragile, sometimes butterflies batter themselves in the killing jar. At night, this makes me wonder about the mixing spoons in the bowl the tangles of the dough, the small temporary fight. For a clean kill, it is better to first stun a butterfly by pinching its thorax. You must practice to get this method right, so it is recommended to try it on common moths or butterflies you are not concerned about. Pinch smartly between your finger and thumb like tweezing a piece of sky. Honing. A sharp knife is a safe knife. There is a difference between honing a knife and sharpening it. The metal rod that stands in the center of my knife block only hones. I can hone my skills, perfect them over time. I might hone granite, hone my French, hone rock climbing and lovemaking. When I sharpen an edge, I grind away at the metal blade. The stainless steel burrs become smooth like a trained voice or like following the rules. But after his suicide, I collected all the blades from the kitchen. I admired the heft of the chef's knife, the balance of the tang. It only takes a 20-degree angle to sharpen the length of a blade. The day he died, I sliced a loaf of bread some cheese to sit out, waiting for return never to come. Where did I think all the blood came from? To hone is to recenter the blade. To sharpen is to animate the wind. After the Suicide The baby grand needs to be tuned. It sits in the corner like a chained bear, pitch an octave like matted fur full of grit. Even so, my son goes to the piano daily, dragging out the music by its papery edge with practice and patience. Early mornings before breakfast, 
the throat of our home fills like gardenias in bloom. When he finally masters Chopin, I am sure the nocturnes harbor all my son's grief. They do mine. I wonder in what key the dead would prefer a song. There are several tiny scratches on the lid of the piano and one long gash on the fallboard. He does not know the manner of death, the stabbing, the slicing, practice cuts, the corner called them. The irony is lost on my son, but not on me. Directions for my son on his 19th birthday. I cup my hands to hold your youth. I try to show you how to do the same. It takes decades of practice to get this right, and by then it is always too late. Yesterday, a man stabbed a homeless man on Church Street. At dinner, we tucked the story between bites of salmon, pieces of song by Fleetwood Mac, melting from the speaker. It rained all day today. I told you that I always thought I'd have another baby. In truth, I knew I was only good for one. No matter how hard you press the outer edges of your palms and pinkies together, they will always leak. You should know that you can't hold water in your palm for long. Don't put yourself in a spot where you'll have to carry all you will need. At dusk, we count four rabbits on the back lawn, and I consider if it is a sign only to watch the stocking, feral, tabby turn them to humble bronze, heavy and frozen and hopefully downwind. At least once a year, you should close your cupped hands like a book. Not to worry, hinged, they always open again. group of poems. I've never read them all together, so I'm, I'm excited to do this. It's about um, a long stay I had in Greece. I was in Greece. I was on an island for about a month, and it was between, it was after um, my late husband's death, and so it's a lot of rebirth, <laughs> re, re, coming back to life in a way. And it's titled Rakamilo, and Rakamilo is a type of drink in Greece, and it's this, it's it's alcoholic, but it's honey, and it's honey, and it's warm, and it's really yummy. So the whole series is called Rakamilo. One, Seraphos Obad. At dawn... You might come to my doorway framed and thirsty. On your lips, you'll keep a promise of apricots and the melatelmi winds. My late husband couldn't forgive the morning, so he took his own life. What would you tell him? Would you speak of the sand in our sheets? We never know what comes next. 
The sun dusts off the moon, but only half-heartedly, then kneels like a lover over the sea. By now, we watch the silhouette of a bird, absorbing the oarsman slowly, drawing him away from the shore. Two, Leah Beach. No gulls arrive. The waves on the beach are fluted and clocked. Bathers stop at the edge, take off their clothes. A woman collects the trash. Nightfall will come, and the shore will close without leaving a message. I crouch in the perfect hour, but cannot decide what road to take. My neck is burnt from the day's sun, my shirt is bald in my fist, and I collect shells like a pilgrim trying to buy my way home. But there is only one path, and there is no way home. Three, warning signs. The fringe on the mala beads frays after daily doses of short caresses and empty, cloudless chants. They were made for use, utilitarian. I use that word in my art history class when I refer to the Minoan clay pots or the Merovingian fibula. I know my hands are utilitarian too, but when I bring them together to pray, they become purely ornamental. Four. Poem beginning with a line after Yehuda Amakai. Past the window in the room where we make love, waves follow one another like lines of laundry as the cliffs unfold, spilling like cloth into the bay. And it is the anise, they say, the snails are after, defining the roads of seraphos like small change coins, curling and climbing fiercest soldiers up each stalk in numbers so thick they could be plucked like white berries ripe with June, and they too would taste of licorice, succulent in a time of honey and nettles. Five. Reading Sappho on Seraphos. Please don't ask of the beekeeper. The boxes stacked, tholos of hive and honey, the priest white suit he wears, masked, the flat plate of the sky as it cracks against the coffee-colored cliffs behind him. Don't ask of the pines gloved in green, the water coated in a biblical blue, and don't ask to claim the words for the galls hovering patient as paper. No, don't ask of the stone walls veining the hills, ancient and heavy with hesitation, the terraces carved and coupled, the roads only suggestions, the beaches loose translation. Please don't ask to hear light. Don't ask to hear I cannot imagine the future of any girl who looks on the light of the sun. Don't ask of the sun. Six, in the morning. In the morning, the echo of the previous day lingers like a shadow on the kitchen wall. Someone will bring in the dead, will clean and mend wounds that will never heal, 
will set a table with cloth and silver for all to eat in memoriam. The silver will not be polished, and the dog will stare in the direction of the sea, where all the answers sink like lures, shiny and brilliant, uselessly swaying like slowly nodding heads. 7. The Monastery of Tachyarchus You turn in your bed to watch the moon rise and once more see what a small coin it is against the darkness. Mary Oliver In Seraphos, I was sure no sky could be so bright as to trade the sparrow's incessant chirrup against the heavens which bore the bronzed cliffs and sheets swollen with the ocean's humidity. Each night I vanished into you, only to find myself in the morning, new body, new dangers. The beaches were full of stones. Would I be only one of so many? At the monastery, the silence might lift like the moon, not with reassurance, but with familiarity like small birds, buoyant in fright, whose circle back to the nest, revealing their young. Love hushed us into compliancy. The monastery's marble floor cooled us into shadows. Small votive offerings, icons for the day, miracles for night. Eight, figure of a woman. It could have been the crescendo of summer, the ebb and flow of your voice, the squid boats rocking in the Bay of Lavadi, sweet Rocamilo on your lips, always when love comes hard, how it can fall. The waves in the bay were like tongues, searching for an open mouth. What did I know of your needs and you of mine? Now you have set the clock backwards, and it is the ticking I listen for. I don't want to become a deity. It holds the word die. I lay that summer down as a burnt offering. Its smell is of hair, ocean, and wild rosemary. I could let the whole island burn, as if the dried gravel roads and beaches of nude bodies had their own summer apart from us. You were cruel and wise. I was nickels and beauty. I hear the sparrows still, tidying their nests in the crooks of roofs. They were relentless. The sky never clouded over, not once. I don't trust a sky that won't rain. The rest of that year crawled to me as if out of hiding. Dee Dee finished her reading with four more poems from her new collection. Ribolita. In a Tuscan farmhouse, I cook ribolita, a peasant soup of white beans, crumbled bread, and kale, as the Campanile di San Biagio rings in the centuries. Though not Catholic, maybe not even a Christian, I kneel in the shadow of this church and look deep inside the sleeves of a sweater I've worn too many months. Three years ago, after taking his own life, the husband I knew burned in a box I chose from several boxes. I also chose his clothes, the urn, and in the end asked him 
to look like death, not a false life. Yet here I am, considering a soup hundreds of years old, the golden altar of the Madonna di Bon Viaggio, and the sound of bells in the lower fields near our farm. I know the path to San Biagio like I know the roof of my own mouth, bells like foil between my teeth electric. The scent of footprints might confuse the dead, but each night I end up between the sheets, windows open in the last hour of lovemaking among bedbugs and common centipedes. In my new husband's arms, trafficking old scars, I hear the prune plums fall from the trees. I will collect and skin them in the morning. Fall. Do you know what I was, how I lived? Louise Glick. It is a goldfinch, one of the two small girls, both daughters of a friend, sees hit the window and fall into the fern. No one hears the small thump, but she, the youngest, sees the flash of gold against the mica sky as the limp feathered envelope crumples into the green. How many times in a life will we witness the very moment of death? She wants a box and a small towel, some kind of comfort for this soft body that barely fits in her palm. Its head rolling side to side, neck broke, eyes still wet and black as seed. Her sister, now at her side, wears a dress too thin for the season white as the winter only weeks away. She wants me to help, wants a miracle. Whatever I say now, I know weighs more than the late fall's layered sky, the jeweled leaves of the elm and maple. I know, too, it is the darkest days I've learned to praise. The calendar packages up time, the days shrink and fold away until the new season. We clothe, burn, then bury our dead. I know this. They do not. So we cover the bird, story its flight, imagine his beak singing. They pick the song and sing it over and over again. Migraine Shard glint of light on the sill. Run on line of daybreak at the hem of the front door. Incandescent orb in the bathroom. Torch of ice in the freezer. These numberless galaxies of light, all danger. Wasp sting, gin burn, gold-plated bangles too tightly wound around my wrist. I'll line my eyes with black coal like the ancients. They will be volcanic rims, right to left, top to bottom, the inside of the bottom lid too, like we did when we were kids. Peacocks cry, coxcomb, a flamed flower, edible, burning, receding, receding. I'm sure there is a candle under the skin on the right side of my face. Its flame moves from my jaw to cheekbone, 
high cheekbones, not flaming cheekbones, zygomatic bone, yoke. When the war is over, I'll untie the knot of my brain. I'll use tweezers like when I untangle gold chains. My right arm is numb except for my heartbeat, fleshy and heavy. Where is the darkness in this day? All the light will be smaller tomorrow. In this way, I feel closer to the dead. Nests In late winter, nests sit like brown clots, twigged pockets at the hinges of branches and trunks, empty bowls, sadly holding only snow in the day's wind, easy to spot among the naked trees whose limbs vein a gray sky. But I'm not deceived. Even leafless, trees know how to roar deep disembodied overtures with the wind. The nests only punctuate the score. Soon, the angle of sunlight shifts, pinning itself within the Brandon Gap. I think the day will end this way sinking between two orthogonals of ridgeline. In our cabin, a thin crack runs from the stone above our mantel up to the ceiling. I suppose the foundation has settled into the backbone of our line of mountain. When I still could, I said to a friend, I thought I wanted another child. He suggested I just wanted the one I had to be young again. Tonight, I will wake to the cat's cry or the snores of a husband I came to know beautifully too late in life. A barred owl will visit the bare ash outside our window. I know this not from the screech or the, her plume, but from the bones of disassembled mice whose bodies, like clocks, once ticked the hours and days. Afterward, Dee Dee and I chatted about how Vermont has influenced her writing, especially as a native Floridian. I lived in Florida for 40 years, or maybe even a little longer. And I write about the natural world. That's kind of, a, as you, you, know, you can see through my poems. And so moving to Vermont, I had to relearn much of the flora and fauna. Oh, and then I should also mention the snow, <laughs> because cold and dark and snow, all of that winds up in my work. And yeah, the natural world just really is important to me. I use it as a metaphor, a reflection of the self in a lot of ways. Is it more difficult to write on a sunny day with oh. the beach right in front of you than in a cold, wintry Vermont February? You know, I find it harder to write about the like the beach or a beach scene, funny enough, than snow and, and mountains. They seem easier for me to find elements of, of those natural spaces to include in my writing. Um, it's easier. And it's not necessarily because I'm just enjoying my you know, gin and tonic on the beach or something. <laughs> Or my white wine, um, and and therefore lost in you know this pleasure. But um, I don't know. It's something about. I mean, I guess my my Seraphos poems they reference beaches, but it's just it was a different different space and place. And yeah, I don't know if it's just easier 
to just write about the cold. <laughs> there is like a sense of introspection in the winter months that offers up some space to be solitary and yes, write. Definitely. I've discovered that for sure. I always wonder how anyone in the South gets anything done because the weather is so beautiful all day long, <laughs> every day. Los Angeles. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you understand. I then. came to New England to buckle down and study because if I went to UCLA, I would just be right. out and about all yep, the time. Yep, yep. Stay tuned for our next episode in the series featuring Jay Perini and Genevieve Plunkett. For more poems, stories, and essays, visit the New England Review online. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to help more people find the show. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening and come back soon for more episodes from our Vermont Writer Series. This episode of NER Out Loud was recorded in Burlington and Middlebury, Vermont. Our feature author was Dee Dee Jackson, who read to us from Moon Jar, which will be out from Red Hen in 2020. NER Out Loud is produced by the New England Review in association with Middlebury College and Oratory Now. Our executive producers are Carolyn Keebler and Dana Yetton. This episode was produced and edited by me, Juliette Luini. Our original theme music is by Thomas Wentworth. Special thanks to Sam Martin and Kylie Winger. <laughs>